Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Amos in the Old Testament. It's one of what we call the minor prophets, but this is not a minor message. Amos chapter 5, uh, maybe easier to find if you start in the book of Matthew in the New Testament and just thumb back page by page. Those last books are so, so small, and you'll find the book of Amos chapter 5, verse 18. If you missed it yesterday, don't miss it tonight. Uh, many of our teenagers, teenagers are involved in a concert for Zimbabwe called Mashambanzu. It means, uh, it's a Zimbabwean word for the darkness right before the dawn. Uh, what our kids are doing is, is amazing and, and extremely important and important for reasons I hope you will see in, in the scriptures today. Uh, these flyers have been out for some time, and, and as you know, along with the concert, our kids are trying to fill a shipping container full of uh, humanitarian aid uh, items that are very, very important for the people of Zimbabwe. You'll notice down the list, it's an extremely ordinary list of things, canned soup, Vaseline, soap, hand sanitizer, sterile gloves, non-aspirin, pain reliever, cough medicine, antibiotic ointment, uh, anti-diarrhea medicine, that one uh, jumps out at me. These are extremely common things for us, very, very common things. But you've got to understand that they're not common in other places and certainly not common in Zimbabwe t- today. I call attention to anti-diarrhea medicine because for us, diarrhea is kind of a joke. It's, it's what you get after you eat at Sola Azteca or, or, or something like that, and, and we joke about it. We get a 24-hour virus, uh, we take some Pepto-Bismol or, or, or drink extra water, and, and we get over this quickly. You've got to understand that diarrhea kills people elsewhere in the world. I was having dinner one night with a man in Washington, D.C., who works for the Center for D- Disease Control and also the, uh, one of the National Academies for Science. His job was to work full-time on a cure for diarrhea because diarrhea is, is one of the leading killers of people in the world. Diarrhea. It, it's something that, uh, honestly, we can walk through Walmart and we can pick up anti-diarrhea medicine and none of us are ever going to die from this. But elsewhere in the world, people die. This list of things is such an ordinary list of things, things that we think nothing about. Some of these medicines go stale in our cabinet, but you've got to understand in Zimbabwe today, in many, many places of the world, they do not have access to these things at all. Which raises a question, a question of fairness, a question of justice. Why is it that we have such incredible access to these things that aspirin would be something absolutely common for us? Anti-diarrhea medicine, I mean, these things are just everyday things for us. How can we possibly explain a world in which people die of things that are so simple, so easily cured? Why is that? How do we explain it? And this is the question that the Old Testament prophets and throughout Scripture, the question that is wrestled with. And in the Old Testament prophets, especially our Scripture today, two very important words I want you to understand and connect with today. The first one is justice. Amos talks about the importance of justice and how God is a God of justice and how God loves justice. I don't know what you think of with the word justice. You probably think of a courtroom. You probably think of a verdict. You might think of that old figure of justice, the blindfolded figure with the scales, the scales of justice, which are supposed to be balanced. Uh, understand, God loves justice. It goes beyond just what happens in a courtroom, however. We're saying that God loves fairness. God loves people, and he likes to know that all of the people of the world are treated in a balanced way, that things are fair, that there is justice for all, one of the values of our country. 
The other word is righteousness. The Old Testament prophets speak much of righteousness. It's also a legal term. It comes from the same sort of uh, uh, vocabulary of of, of justice and, and the court system. But righteousness has to do simply with right living, always choosing to do the right thing. And you've got to understand how much God loves for us to do the right thing. God loves righteousness. Which brings us to our scripture today. Amos was a farmer, not a a real prophet. He never went to seminary. He had no pulpit. But God lit lit a fire in his heart and a message that he had to preach. And it's a message to God's own people. And it is a very difficult message. Listen to what the Word of God says. Amos chapter 5 verse 18. What sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here. You have no idea what you're wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. And that day you will be like a man who runs from a a lion only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and he's bitten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river, of righteous living. The story in the book of Daniel is, is, is amazing. There's a, a very wicked king. His name was Belshazzar. Belshazzar was wicked but powerful. One night in, in Belshazzar's palace, there was an incredible party, an incredible party going on. All of his cronies, all of his cabinet, everyone who was anybody was at Belshazzar's feast. They were feasting, and Belshazzar was beginning to get a little drunk, and again, he was very, very drunk with his own power. And, and he decided that uh, it could be amusing to his guests, and it could be a lot of fun for him. If he could go back into the royal storehouse and pull out all of those things that they had stolen when Babylon ransacked, of, of course, the, the temple at Jerusalem. They had defeated God's people, taken them captive, and kept some of the nice things, the, the pricey things, the gold things back in storage. And, Belshazzar thought, wouldn't it be a hoot? Wouldn't it be funny to get those things that were holy to the Jews, those things dedicated to the God of the Jews? Wouldn't it be funny if we could pull those out and we can drink our hooch out of them? We can have our party with all the things that came out of the the old Jewish uh, temple. And, And that's exactly what he did. As an insult to God's people, as an insult to the God of the Jews, he pulled out all of the goblets and all of the fancy things from the temple and they began to, to drink their beer and their hooch and just have their party with these sacred, sacred ancient objects. The story says in the middle of all of this, in the middle of the laughing and the dancing and the drinking, in the middle of the insults to, to God, in the middle of all of that, suddenly a hand, a, a grisly detached hand 
begins to scratch out a message on the wall, and everybody sees it. Everybody sees that grisly hand. It's like a scene out of a horror movie or something out of Scooby-Doo. A hand that just comes out and starts to scratch on the wall, and it writes four words, meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. And everyone stops in the middle of the party. They just stop and they look at that handwriting on the wall. You've heard that phrase, read the writing on the wall. This is where it comes from. But nobody could read the writing on the wall. No one could read it. And Belshazzar became afraid and the whole party begins to become fear, uh, afraid. And, and, and suddenly Belshazzar begins to panic and say, someone read that. Someone please read what that message says. Tell me what those words mean. And nobody could read it. Nobody knew what those words would mean. Many, many tickle Finally, the queen mother steps forward and she says, Belshazzar, listen, I can hear your knees knocking underneath your robe. You've got to pull yourself together. There is a Jewish lad, a Jewish boy's name is Daniel. He's weird. He's a freaky kind of kid. He's able to understand dreams and, and, and he's probably the only kid in the world that I know of who could have a shot at telling you what that says. Go get Daniel, the, one of the Jewish boys. It's what Belshazzar does. He has nothing else to do. No other options. They bring in righteous Daniel. Daniel's a good guy. Daniel comes in. King Belshazzar says to Daniel, I'm told that you can perhaps read the the writing on the wall for me. I will pay you an enormous sum of money if you'll do it. I I will pay you money. I will make you wealthy. I will give you the top position in my government cabinet. I will give you fame. I will make you somebody if you will only read those words for me. Please read those words for me. Daniel says, King Belshazzar, anybody in the world who knows God could read those words for you, so I'll do it for you for free. I'll read them to you for free. But before he reads them to him, he gives him a little sermon. you got to like that about Daniel. He says, Belshazzar, before I tell you what that says, I want to tell you something else. You need to remember your daddy, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that God gave him great power, and God gave him a long leash for a long time. But when Nebuchadnezzar went too far, that leash snapped back, and it snapped back in a very dangerous way on your daddy. And you need to understand that God's going to do the same thing for you. God's going to do the kind of justice that he did on your daddy. It's about to happen to you. Do you want to know what the writing on the wall says? It says very simply, King Belshazzar, God says to you, your party's over. That's what it said. Your party's over. By the time the moon comes up tonight, you'll be dead. Amazing. And honestly, it happens that way. It's exactly how it happens. In the Bible, it happens that way, swiftly, cleanly, beautifully. A rotten king like Belshazzar gets exactly what's coming to him in an amazing and beautiful way. you got to love that kind of justice. And Daniel, the righteous one, who continues to be insulted and put down, continues to rise to the top. The righteous one rises to the top. You've got to love that. In the Bible, that's the way it always happens. But the problem is, I get an idea that some of you don't really believe that's how the world works. And honestly, in the world as we see it, the world we live in, we don't always see justice happen quickly like that. It just doesn't work like that. I know lots of rotten, evil people who seem to be doing fine. They can't read the writing on the wall, but it's not hurting them any. They prosper. They continue to oppress and abuse people. It's horrible to see people with the power who use that power only to further themselves and harm others. But it happens every day. Where's the justice? 
And people like Daniel, righteous people, innocent people, they suffer every day. When are they going to get what's coming to them? I'm telling you, in the Bible, justice is swift and it's perfect. But in the world, I don't see that. Does the world operate this way? I, I want the world to operate this way. It just seems more random sometimes, like a big roulette wheel, or it's as if some sort of gamble where the numbers fall, and sometimes the numbers fall in in, in a nice way. And honestly, for all of us born in the United States, the greatest nation in the history of the world, we have won the lottery. The numbers have certainly fallen in, in our favor. We have such prosperity. We have so many blessings. We don't even understand what we have. Now, others in the world born without freedom, born without food, born without any of the material things that we enjoy every single day. The numbers have fallen in a different way for them. It's horrible for them, but it just seems random. It seems so random. But let me ask you something. What if it's not as random as you think? I want you to consider something. Maybe there really is... Justice, and I don't mean a random kind of justice or a a, a spotty kind of justice. What if in the end there really is an ultimate kind of justice? What if there really is a God? What if God is truly a God of perfect justice and he's keeping score? What if there is a God who one day promises that he will come and he will bring perfect justice? What if? This is the message that Amos preaches. This is the message that Amos preaches. God loves justice. God is a God of justice. And God will see that there is justice. But if you think that's good news, you ought to think again. This is what Amos says. You better learn to fear this God, Amos says. Amos is a different kind of prophet. For those of us who have grown up hearing only about the love of God, you never heard Amos preach. Oh, God is a God of love, but there is more to it than that, and you need to understand that. God is a God of perfect holiness and a God of perfect justice, and though he is so very forgiving for us who trust in the blood of his son Jesus, although he is so forgiving, I'm telling you, God does not take sin lightly. He does not turn his head away from injustice. God is paying attention. And this is the message that Amos brings. In the very beginning of his preaching, the very beginning of this book, he says, the Lord roars. And for Amos, God is a lion, a ferocious lion. Not talking about some little nice kitty cat that some of you have at home that sleeps on the foot of your bed. This is a lion who comes to tear you to pieces. This is what Amos says. This is what God is like. You should learn to fear him. This is where wisdom begins. You need to fear this God. He is awesome and awful. Do you understand the words? This is a loving and terrible God, Amos says. And he's preaching to God's people. And this is where it gets so puzzling for some of us. He's speaking to God's own people. This message of darkness and and gloom and judgment is for the very people who think that God's on their side. That's why Amos says, listen, all of you who say, oh, I wish the day of the Lord would come soon. Amos says, you you don't know what you're wishing for. I I mean, it it sounds like us. The, The people Amos is preaching to, they sound like us. 
It's the crowd of people who don't miss a single opportunity to come to the temple and worship. You understand that? It's that crowd. And they come to God and they sing apparently marvelous hymns and they gather and the temple continues to increase in its attendance. And the whole time, the whole time, Amos is preaching, you have no idea the God to whom you call upon. You do not seem to know what he is like. And if you think the day he comes, it's going to be good news for you. You've got another thing coming. It's going to be like a a man who's fleeing a lion only to run right into the mouth of a bear. That's what it's going to be like on the day he comes. All of the folks who have all 14 books from the Left Behind series and you think you can't wait for Jesus to come back. Amos says, you don't understand. It's going to be like running from a lion into the bear, fleeing the bear, going into your house thinking you're safe. You lean on the wall and a deadly serpent leaps out and takes your life. It's like that, he says. You have no idea what you're wishing for. Well, so how can we stand? How can we call upon this God? How can we possibly gather in his name and worship? What does he want from us? What does he truly want? And the answer is plain, as plain as anything in Scripture. God wants justice. God wants justice, a mighty flood of justice, Amy says. Uh, Amos says. That's what God wants, a mighty flood of justice, a never-ending stream of righteous living. That's what God wants. Preaching to the crowd at the temple, they thought they understood what God wanted. Do you get that? That they gathered, they, they followed the Old Testament, or at least in the temple, that they, they did. The hymns that the scripture says God hates. I mean, understand, they're singing out of the book of Psalms. Understand, all of the offerings that they bring in their worship, and they're doing it exactly by the book, but somehow in this sermon from Amos, God delivers a word, and this word is an evaluation of their worship. It's an assessment of what God thinks about what they do every time they gather in his name. And what does God say about their worship? God says, I hate it. God says, I hate your worship. I hate what you do when you gather in my name. I hate it because you are hypocrites. I hate your hypocrisy. This is a hard word for us. And the reason it's hard is because honestly, we're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. I know some of you right there thinking, Brother Tim, you're the biggest one of all. And you're right. I am a hypocrite. I do not, I cannot possibly practice everything I preach. I wish I could. I am a hypocrite. I I am. But the problem is, those of us who don't like hypocrites, we have this ability to see the hypocrisy in other people. I can see your hypocrisy from a mile away in the fog. I can see it in you But I have a really difficult time seeing that in me. I don't see it in in myself. It's like what the book of James says. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. You understand? We deceive ourselves. Those of us who come to church so much, those of us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who read the Bible, there's a a tremendous trap of self-deception that we fall into. We hear it so much, and we talk about it so much, we start thinking we're actually doing it, the, the will of the Lord. 
every now and then somebody said, Brother Tim, I'd love to hear you preach a, preach a really big sermon on evangelism. And I do it. I try to. And if I do it right, I'll preach it. I'll preach it. And you'll feel it. I'll preach a sermon on evangelism so good that when you walk out, you'll feel like you've been evangelized. It's interesting. Brother Tim, we wish you'd preach on tithing. Preach on tithing. Preach us a strong sermon on tithing. And I will preach a sermon. I'll do my best on tithing. I'll preach it so strong that when it's over, you'll feel like you tithe. It's interesting. I spent all day yesterday, most of yesterday, or at least the early part of the day, involved with, with Greenwood's cross-country team. My son runs cross-country. Started early in the morning at a, at a time trial. I watched all these kids run around Kiriakis, you know, yelling out times. It was amazing to watch them run. It's great to see them run. At the end of that, we had a coach's meeting with the parents, and we, we talked about running. He told us all about the times and about the, the, the best way to run and techniques, and we talked about running for, for the longest time. When that was all over, I was so tired. I was absolutely exhausted. But understand, I'm a runner. I like to run. But at the end of the day, being so tired, it dawned on me, I didn't run today. I didn't run a step. I was exhausted. I felt like I'd been running. All, I'd been around people running. We'd been talking about running. But I hadn't really hadn't run a step. Those of us who gather in God's house and we talk about good things and we talk about making a difference in the world, we talk about evangelizing, we talk about telling other people about Jesus, we talk about it so much it's almost, it makes us almost feel like we've told somebody about Jesus, doesn't it? When we talk about tithing, we talk about being good people, we talk about missions, we talk about stuff so much we actually sometimes walk away thinking we did something. But I'm telling you, talking about it in this house is not doing anything. And God says, I hate your hypocrisy. God wants to see something happen from our lives. He wants to see a mighty flood of justice. He wants to see a never-ending river of righteous living. And that river's got to flow out of us. We've got to be in that flow of righteous living. But if we don't do right, if we don't live righteously, God says, I hate that. I hate your hypocrisy. Come to church as many times as you want. Be perfect in attendance. I hate it when you're a hypocrite. You bring your offering in. Put as much as you want in the plate. God says, I hate it. I hate your offering. I don't need your money. It stinks to me because you're a hypocrite, because you're phony, because there are still people out there who do not know the love of God or the justice of God and who do not see righteous living flowing out of this place. I hate the noise of your praise songs, God says. I hate your singing because the song rings in your church, but it doesn't flow out of your heart. I hate it, God says. You're hypocrites. God loves justice. It is not okay that we have so much and the rest of the world has so little. That is not okay. It is not balanced, and God hates that, and God is not going to look past that. God knows all that you and I have. He knows that that whole list of Zimbabwe, we could easily fill a shipping container. We should do it more than once. We should do it several times. We can do that. Those items aren't expensive for us, nor are they hard for us to get. It would save lives. Do you understand that? God says he wants to see that kind of thing happening in our company. Scripture makes it plain. It's very easy for us to fall into a, a pattern of hypocrisy. Easy for us to be uh, hearers of the word and not doers. And that's why Scripture says the plainest test of your religion, true religion, is this, James says. 
It's the way you take care of the widows and the orphans. Do you really want to know whether you're a hypocrite or not? The real test is just to pay attention to how you treat people. Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? Do you provide for their needs? Do you care about anybody but yourself? That's the test. God loves justice. God loves fairness. God loves righteous living. So what do we do? What do we do? I want to make a difference. And I know you people. I know you do too. What do you do? You remember being a kid and sitting there at supper. And you know how mamas are. Mamas stay up late at night trying to figure out the grossest thing to make for supper. You remember that? Do you remember being a kid and your parents make your plate? And I can remember, you know, my mama throwing on my plate, like, I think she called them butter beans. But they were like the size of a small child's head, like one bean. It was enormous green. You remember, see, do you know those? My mother invented those in the torture chamber of her kitchen. I mean, we're talking about butter beans, like this big, horrible. And they taste like dirt. And if you put one in your mouth, it just gets bigger. And then you put it in mashed potatoes and you try to, you know, disguise it. But then it's just, it's just you remember butter beans like that? Did you ever, were you ever forced to eat turnip greens? Horrible, horrible stuff like this, green peas, green beans. Do you remember that? And you stare at the plate and you push the food around and you cry and you whine and you just won't eat. And finally your mother gets fed up with you and she will say this to you. She will say what? There are starving children in, fill in the blank, where did your mama say? Africa, China. There are starving children and they would love to have those butter beans. And what did you think? What went through you? You better not have said it. (laughs) But what did you think? If the kids in China are hungry for butter beans, I got a plate they can have. Yeah. Let them have them. Yeah. Maybe you said that, or, or you, maybe you thought, and this is what would go through my mind, what difference does it make? You know, if they're in China and I am here staring at a plate of butter beans, what difference does it make to them if I eat them or not? They're never going to see my butter beans. You understand what I'm saying? It's this, this sense of disconnection that even as children we pick up on. How is it connected? The fact that I am here with a lot of food and the fact that they're there with no food, how is exactly that connected? And how can I ever af- affect them? It's an overwhelming kind of feeling, that disconnection, because many of us would love to make a difference. I would love to feed them. I would love to do anything, but just don't know what to do. And God says, I want justice, I expect justice. And when God comes back, we're going to answer, answer for the injustice of the world. You and I will answer for it. What are we going to have to say? God wants us to do something. We don't always know what to do. So let me make it plain for you. I don't know what we should do, but we've got to do something. Doing nothing is not an option for us. We're God's people. We've got to do what we can. We, we can't do everything, but we've at least got to do the things we can do. We've got to do something. We can't call ourselves God's people and not care, so maybe that's where it starts. Maybe we just learn to care. I was running in Bowling Green a few weeks back. It was a beautiful morning, early in the morning. and I was running downtown on one of the greenways, and I crossed one of those bridges over the river. And as I was crossing, I heard noise kind of underneath the bridge. 
and I realized people are getting up to start their day, I remembered people live under this bridge. People live under that bridge. The fact that I know that means something. And the fact that you and I are aware of that sort of thing, that there are people in our hometown who sleep under the bridge. Do you understand? We're supposed to care about that. That's supposed to bother us. How many extra rooms do I have in my house? How many extra beds are in your house? And nobody ever sleeps in them. Do you understand this incredible lack of justice and we should care about this? This should bother us. you got to do something. I love what our kids are doing for Zimbabwe. It's something. And you wonder, what can kids in Woodburn and Franklin do for, for people in Zimbabwe? You don't understand. You, you, where have you been, under a rock? Our kids are doing something amazing, fantastic. You've got to understand the situation in Zimbabwe. Do you possibly, can you possibly understand 94% unemployment? Zimbabwe, 94% unemployment. You and I think the world's coming to end because we're starting to get close to 10% in the U.S. We don't know anything. 94% of people in Zimbabwe have no jobs. Let that sink in. The inflation rate in Zimbabwe is almost impossible to calculate. Some say it's 2,000%. I read one serious estimate that put it more at 3 trillion percent. 3 trillion percent inflation. Your brain can't absorb that, neither can mine. There are senior adults in Zimbabwe who work their whole lives in a prosperous country that's been taken away from them. They work their whole lives for a pension that was supposed to last them the rest of their lives. Now, a senior adult living on a pension in Zimbabwe, their whole pension, everything they have for the rest of their life, will not buy them one day's food. Will not buy a single day of food. Our kids are doing something. They've learned to care. Their hearts break for Zimbabwe. Lisa Williams, God bless her, she's been carrying this burden for Zimbabwe and trying to get others to capture this burden and share it with her. And our kids are doing something. They're doing something. Don't you miss it tonight? Don't you understand? They're doing something. They're doing what they can. And it will make a difference. It will make a difference. You and I may not see it, but those who open that shipping container and they get diarrhea medicine and, and aspirin and they get cough medicine, that will keep them alive. It makes a difference. We can make a difference. Never forget the day I, I walked into Rich Pond Market when Rhodes Hester owned it. I walked in one day in the afternoon and it was empty, just Rhodes. And Rhodes Hester, he's a member of our church, one of our deacons. Rhodes was standing behind the cash register crying like a baby. In the grocery, all by himself, crying like a baby. I said, Rhodes, what's wrong? Brother, what's wrong with you today? Rhodes said this. He said, I'm standing here in a grocery full of food, and I know there are children in Honduras who are starving, and I can't figure out how to get the food to them. If you know Rhodes at all, you know by now he's fed a lot of them. He figured out a way. I mean, he just figured out a way. If you ever go on a trip to Honduras with Rhodes, you look out, he will confiscate your luggage. You don't get to take underwear. He's going to pack your luggage with food. He will. 
Because honestly, they need food more than you need panties. Rhodes figured out a way. God bless him. That's how it works. That's how it works. You just figure out a way. You, you do something. We've got people in our congregation right now, hearts breaking wide open for kids in Franklin. They call them the goth kids. They hang out at the library. They hang out all over Franklin. Nobody loves them. Nobody cares. But there are people in our church right now who are learning to care for them. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. you got to learn just to care. It starts there. What's wrong with your heart if you don't think about anybody but yourself and your family? Wilma Brooks, one of our ladies right now, has come to me with tears in her eyes saying, Brother Tim, I have such a heart for the children in Franklin. She's going to the Franklin campus and teaching Sunday school because she says she just wants to go love those kids. There's something in her that will not sleep at night because she knows there are kids that need love. You can do something. You've got to do something. You've got to at least care. Because if you don't care, there is something profoundly wrong with your heart. If you say that you know the love of Jesus, you say that you have the love of Jesus, then that should be flowing out of you like a never-ending stream of righteous living and justice. So seriously, the handwriting is on the wall for us. Can you read it? Do you understand the heart of a holy God who loves the world, loves the whole world, loves it so much, and he does not love us any more than he loves the starving people, the people dying of AIDS. He does not love us more. And we will answer one day for how we let them die and did not care. God says, I hate your hypocrisy. I hate the way you gather and worship and feel so self-satisfied while the poor suffer at your doorstep. I hate that, God says. And when I come, it'll be like a lion. You'll have to answer. What I want, God says, is a mighty flood of justice. I want justice to fall on the world like water. I want righteous living, a never-ending stream of people living right, right by God and right with the rest of the world. I want to see righteous living like a river. Understand, if that's what God wants, if that's what God requires, then he's got to have it. A a flood of justice, a, a river of righteousness. And it means very simply, that river of justice and righteousness, it it has to start flowing out of you and me. It has to flow out of us. Pray with me. God, it is not fair. It is not fair the way the weakest and most vulnerable people in the world must suffer. It is not fair that the most vulnerable of all babies in the womb are are murdered in our world, in, in our nation. It is not fair, Lord. But God, we know that you are a God of ultimate fairness. And one day, Lord, we know that the score will be settled. And we know that one day you shall have that mighty flood of justice, that never ending stream of righteous living. 
God, today what is before us is simply the choice as to whether or not we're going to be a part of that flood of justice. We're going to step into that river of right living, Lord. We want to do that because it's what you require of us. God, I thank you for our kids, for Lisa, for Byron and Susie and all of those, Lord, who are being right now this week in a tremendous voice for those suffering in Zimbabwe. God, thank you for them. Bless their efforts. Let a mighty flood of justice, Lord, pour out from their efforts. But God, let it not stop with these kids. Let it not stop with this weekend, Lord. There is a broken world, a world of suffering people. Some so near to us, Lord, we must turn our eyes away. But God, I pray that you will not let us turn our face away from the suffering of the world. God, let us see the pain of others and recognize in their tears our purpose for living. Oh God, we want justice. God, we recognize that if you judged us according to our sins today, if we got perfect justice, Lord, we could not stand. We all stand condemned. Lord, we know that none of us can stand before your perfect throne of justice outside of the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness for our sins that he offers us. God, thank you for your grace. God, we pray that you would help us to fear you and to serve you. We pray that our hearts would be broken, Lord, by all of the things in the world that break your great heart. Break our hearts today, Lord. Move us to do something. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.